0: I want to talk um, about infant feeding practices in post-war Britain. And um, I wanted to do a lot in a very short amount of time, so I'm going to be sort of dipping in to four main themes. Um, Firstly, to think about the idea of following a feeding feeding routine of babies. And this was a really popular idea at the start of the period I'm looking at, so in the 1940s. And then it went out of fashion, um, really, in the 1960s. And then it came back into fashion again uh, at the end of the century. So it's quite interesting how it's kind of um, the the transition that's gone gone through with that. And then linked to this, I want to think about women's choice to breast or bottle feed, and how this decision was reached. Then I want to move on to think a little bit about weaning how and when children were introduced to solid foods and the types of food that was used. And then finally, I'm going to very briefly think about what happened when children started nursery and how feeding was part of the nursery routine. And really, I want to look at this to think about some of the conflicts that could arise um, between home and nursery practices. So I'll just say a little bit about that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going to be just saying a little bit about several different things uh, but we can explore them in more depth in questions at the end. And to start, I want to think about my methodological approach, um, as this is, I think, going to be interesting throughout what I'm going to be saying, thinking about using oral history. So the paper comes out of research that I conducted into motherhood in post-war Britain. And this was based in on oral history interviews with 160 women from around Oxfordshire, mainly from Oxfordshire, and then I used to use a small number from Berkshire as well to have a kind of comparison there. Um, and while all the women lived in Berkshire or Oxfordshire when their children were growing up, I specifically chose to have women from a range of different communities, um, rural, urban, and suburban. So i um, show you map of Oxfordshire up there. So... Um, to have people from Oxford city centre as well as from some of the um, villages both in um, uh, kind of south of Oxfordshire and in the north of Oxfordshire. I had Benson and Young in the south of Oxfordshire. And some villages around Banbury in the north of Oxfordshire. Um, and then within Oxford itself, I interviewed people who were in um, the Cowley, around the Cow- Cowley in the kind of east Oxford suburbs and then north Oxford suburbs. So there's quite a range of, and also... What used to be the old city centre areas. Um, uh, So, there's quite a range of different types of communities in terms of class, in terms of um, urban and rural, uh, in in terms of kind of occupational structures, to get a range of different experiences. I interviewed as many women as were logistically possible. So, for an oral historian, 160 interviews is quite a lot, maybe not for other disciplines. the numbers are lower than in kind of large-scale um, social sciences, sampling, um, but for all historians we're kind of thinking about dense and rich qualitative material rather than having a, a, a huge sample. And we're also, the kind of the limitation that all the women have volunteered to be interviewed. So that that is a limitation, there are going to be um, experiences that aren't represented, but kind of doing, doing the best with um, the limitations that, that I faced. And I found um, these women through community groups, social clubs, uh, going on local radio, putting things in local newspapers, and largely by snowballing. So um, each time I interview someone, I ask them to recommend someone else, um, well, ask them to really recommend me to someone else to speak to. So as I said, the sample is self-selecting, but I did try to construct a sample that ranged in age. So my um, oldest interviewees were in their 90s, the youngest in their 50s, 40s in fact, Um, and to have uh, both middle class and working class women. This was done on the basis of what people identified, how they identified themselves. Had a range of different educational backgrounds from women who left school at 14 to those who'd been graduates. And I wanted to see how locality, so um, by having a range of different communities, education and class, all influence women's experiences. I chose to have a case study rather than do a national survey, so I focused on this kind of quite small area, to enable an in-depth analysis of how living in different types of localities and communities affected women's experiences of motherhood. So I was keen to have a kind of enough people from each area to really get a sense of how living in these particular communities really determined women's experiences. And the strength of using oral history combined with a case study approach is that it allows the cross-generational experience of motherhood to be examined through an analysis of different cohorts of women from within the same communities, so when we're thinking about change over time, having people from the same areas, um, kind of having that kind of framework to seeing how living in the same areas has changed over time is really interesting. And it's also interesting to think about the kind of collective memories that form within communities as well. It's long been known that memories are formed collectively. The individual calls recollections to mind by relying on frameworks of social memory. And the family plays a crucial role in this construction of memory. So we think that memories are transmitted through the stories that family members tell. Children learn to remember in the family environment, Guided by parental intervention and shared reminiscence. So the kind of cultural transmission of memories within the family is a subtle process. But thinking about kind of generations of women enables us to think about the notions and practices that guide people's lives in different family and historical contexts. And um, how memories are passed down with generations. And if we're thinking about feeding. Um, how memories of feeding practices as well as the feeding practices themselves are passed through generations. And when I was, um, the interviews were based upon the life cycle. So I asked people about their own childhood and then having their children, and then if they had grandchildren, to reflect upon the kind of different generations. So, in fact, we're kind of getting memories back from the late 19th century through to the early 21st century through kind of speaking with. Um, getting people to reflect upon their grandmothers' experiences as well as they had grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I used um, oral history enable to get objective information so people can tell you about um, level of services that are available in their area or um, thinking about the different types of foods that were available. But also I wanted to think about uh, kind of subjective uh, emotions and subjectivity of the interviews as well. To think about the thoughts and feelings of the women involved. How did they feel about feeding? Um, how did they, how did it make them feel at the time? How does it make them feel now, reflecting back? So that's kind of briefly saying a little bit about um, the methodology. Now I turn to actually think about the kind of uh, the material that I gathered itself. And I'm putting up here um, just a chart about kind of what was happening to um, breastfeeding rates and linked to that um, infant mortality rates, because this is kind of the background, the background history um, of what I'm going to be talking about. The issue of infant feeding had become an issue of much importance in Britain um, from the late 19th century. The Second Boer War. Um, 1889 to 1902, had focused attention sharply on the ability of mothers to rear fit children. The fate of the empire was deemed to depend upon tomorrow's soldiers, and an unacceptable number were either not surviving infancy or growing up physically feeble. Concern about this wastage of infant life intensified in the years surrounding World War I, with medical officers of health convinced that if mothers were better educated in the art of mothering, and particularly in the art of feeding, fewer babies would die. While infant welfare clinics and health visitors were the keen promoters of modern methods in child-rearing practices, mothers were exposed to changing ideas from a variety of sources, There were advice columns on child-rearing in national and local newspapers and Mm police magazines, and there were special child-rearing books and magazines, which were produced with wide circulation and multiple reprints. And um, these books, as well as influencing mothers directly, also influenced people like the health visitors, who then were passing on information to mothers as well. So there was a kind of direct influence, and also through the medical professionals dealing with women. Now, one of the most famous or perhaps infamous experts was Frederick Truby King, and Truby King was a New Zealand doctor famous for his work on child welfare, and he was popular um, in Britain, Australia, and New Zealand, Um, and there were kind of equivalents of Truby King in the United States and and continental Europe, but I'm going to focus on Truby King as he was most um, important in the context I'm looking at. And he'd come up with his theories about infant feeding through looking at um, um, animals and thinking about how um, animals fed their children. And his first book about the care of babies was published in 1913. And although he died in 1938, his influence continued long after that. Um, His books remained in print and his daughter also published on the subject. So he's really very important um, during the interwar years and then uh, in the years immediately after World War II as well. And the principal thread that ran through his advice was that babies needed strict routines. He also argued that mothers needed strict routines as well. And we can think about this as kind of an idea of the the regimen, that um, as well as strict routines in feeding, um, there were strict routines about um, fresh air, And it's all of this kind of what makes a healthy life. (coughs) But the routine that he thought was most crucial was this feeding routine. He asserted that four-hourly feeding was necessary for babies, and he threatened women with dire consequences if they disregarded his advice. So he stated, Never give a baby food merely to pacify him or to stop him crying. It will damage him in the long run. And there's lots uh, about ruining babies, spoiling babies, that um, going to, they'll be irreparably damaged forever um, if, you, uh, if you feed babies on demand. And this belief that babies needed a feeding routine was a highly influ- influential element of Truby King's philosophy. So when asked what were the contemporary ideas about childcare when she had her children in the 1940s, Olive, one of the women I interviewed, answered, I think that most people thought you had a certain time to feed, and if they cried, you leave them. However, despite saying this was the orthodox method of feeding, Olive also added that she wasn't very keen. And it's interesting to think about why, why she had this, um, what was going on here. I mean, it may have been the result of looking back with hindsight, which had led her to change her position. Um, And I found this was something that came through in a number of the interviews. So um, Esther, who'd had her children in 1959 and 1963, expressed a similar position. When asked if she followed feeding routines, she replied, I was very strict. I didn't believe in demand feeding. It was every four hours. I've changed my mind, though, since then. I don't think it's good to be that strict. And it's interesting that as Truby King's ideas had become discredited in the years after Esther had her children, she felt the need to reevaluate her stance and now concluded that it was a mistake. So we can think about kind of changing ideas about um, feeding that were going on over the second half of the century. In addition to his books, Truby King's theories on childcare were also dispersed through True Be King Society, and Oxford had a True King Society that ran a clinic uh, in Oakthorpe Road in Summertown in the 1940s. And one of the women um, I interviewed, Sarah, had attended the clinic and classed her daughter as the perfect True King baby. She said the clinic was very strict on bringing the children up with four-hourly feeding, and no feeding at night, and the routine established itself. And I fed my daughter, breastfed, for nine months, and the last month you reduced the feeds. it was terribly prescribed. And when I was in the hospital having my daughter, the woman in the bed next to me was the wife of the head waiter at the round dog. Nice motherly sort of girl. And she said, oh, I can't wait to get them out of here and do what I like with them. You know, I was horrified. I was quite sure she was ruining her baby. interviewees who had their children in the 1940s and 50s um, were were much more strongly influenced by Truby King than the generations that came after. And women who'd been children themselves at this period with mothers who'd employed Truby King's routines recalled how it could lead to conflict between them when their own children were born. So we're thinking that... um, uh, during the 1950s, there was becoming a move away. Spock had published um, his book in the 1940s, um, Benjamin Spock, on child rearing, uh, and new ideas about demand feeding, um, so to feed rather than following a routine, feed the ch- kind of feeding led by the child were becoming more influential. And then this could lead to a conflict with... Um, the women I interviewed who were following a different demand led feeding rather than what their mothers had done with them. So, Carmel was born in 1949. She'd been still of a, um, when she was born, her mother was still following a, a routine led approach. But she had her three children in 1977, 1982, and 1985. And she felt that the difference between her own approach and that of the older members of her family caused a significant degree of conflict between them. She explained, Even my sister, his children were, I suppose, a good ten years older than our lot. You know, she'd had a completely different style. And they felt, my mother probably less than anybody. But they did feel a bit challenged by it all. And they tended to say, Oh, you can't. Breastfeeding on demand? Don't do that. However... What's interesting is that feeding routines made a reappearance at the end of the century with the popularity of Gina Ford. Ford came to prominence in the 1990s through her work as a maternity nurse, and her first book, The Contented Little Baby Book, was published in 1999, and it's interesting if you read the two books together, um, Gina Ford and Trudy King, how similar the tone is. You know, we've got 75 years have passed, um, and yet they're very prescriptive, very much orders, telling mothers what to do, um, very rigid approach to raising children. And evoking the earlier advice of figures like Truby King, Ford stressed the need for a daily routine for both the baby and its parents. And again, she also stressed that dire consequences could could happen um, if this wasn't followed. Now, again, we can see kind of generational conflicts coming in through women who'd had their children uh, in the 60s and 70s, who'd been following a demand-led approach, and then finding their daughters were going back to this kind of strict feeding routines that they had um, tried to kind of fight against with their children. So, Fiona's children were born between 1966 and 1970. Comparing her own experience with that of her daughter, who had a baby in the early 2000s, she said, I saw my daughter had got that book about the routine, by whatever her name is. And I think there, I was there when the midwife came to see her, and I saw this book. Gina Ford is it or something, and she knows everything. 6.45, baby is ready to feed. I thought, where have I seen this before? This was in the parenting magazines, when my first son was a baby. And I used to say, 6.45, Fiona goes to sleep. You know? The baby's not interested in a feed at 6.45, and he's damn well not getting one. And I read this thing, and I said, really, you know, in my experience, babies don't behave like this. But it's interesting nonetheless that Fiona kind of reflected back, thought that some element of routine may have been beneficial. And she said of her daughter, I think she's more sensible than I was about feeding and routine. So it's interesting this kind of conflict um, that comes in when women were reflecting back. And the question of routine was a thorny issue. Many women were left with ambivalent attitudes towards it. And recollecting back upon what had gone on um, from their position today, the ongoing debates that were being played out amongst experts and in popular culture um, influenced how they... Thought back upon their own experiences, and it's interesting that it's still such a current issue about routine—whether to follow it or not, whether to va- wake babies up to feed them or not. It's kind of, you know, um, Penelope Leach and um, Gina Ford are still kind of fighting over it. So it's very current, and this, this kind of the currency is also affects how people remember back upon what they did, whether they did the right thing. Similarly. Um, difficult subject was the decision to breast or bottle feed. And it was a question of great importance during the period. And again, it elicited strong opinions, both amongst experts and amongst the women themselves. So for Tre- Frederick Truby King, feeding had meant breastfeeding. The two were synonymous. He told mothers that the consequences of not breastfeeding would be severe said, babies don't make themselves delicate and sickly, they become so through faulty treatment, mainly through bottle feeding. Several interviewees felt compelled to breastfeed because they were receiving messages from sources such as midwives, health visitors, sometimes their own family and friends, that it was essential for the health of the child. So um, by the period I'm looking at by the post war period, the message that breast breastfeeding was best was um, had kind of was becoming more important, becoming more forcefully articulated. Um, and the, the research being done to support support this and the kind of um, in the interwar years um, the infant formula companies had still kind of had had power um, but by this period the stress on breastfeeding was becoming more forcibly more articulated. Many medical professionals were arguing at this time that breastfeeding was healthier for babies. Reviewing the results of the 1952 breastfeeding survey, which showed that 65% of babies in Oxford were breastfed at the end of two months, the MOH, Medical Office of Health, um, reported that he wanted this figure to increase. So we're already into a period of quite... Um, Campaigns to improve breastfeeding rates. These didn't always, these uh, kind of national campaigns didn't always filter through to the local levels. So you found that women could often receive very contradictory information. But nonetheless, um, there was already a strong message about breastfeeding, and this could leave some women feeling that they had been bullied into it, when they felt their babies were better off bottle-fed. Bethany told me, you feel pressured probably into breastfeeding and you've got to, you know, you think, oh, that's what we should be doing. But I remember a friend came over and she marched me up to the village and bought a bottle and some milk and we came down and we fed her and she seemed more content. And Deborah presented a similar account of her efforts to breastfeed. She said, I didn't try to breastfeed and then in the end I had to bottle him. Because either it wasn't coming, or I didn't have any, and the others just went straight onto the bottle, I think. They used to try you, didn't they? You must try, you must try, even if it wasn't going there. However, I also found that some women welcomed this message. They welcomed the efforts of medical staff. So Grace had her first baby um, in 1965 at the Radcliffe Infirmary. And she explained that the staff were very anxious for you to breastfeed your baby. And that's not always easy. And it wasn't easy. But they got me going, and they were terrific. As I was saying, this was kind of a period of change in some respects in the advice that was coming out. And this meant that women could receive um, different information dependent on its source. And they could receive conflicting advice. And we can see this in the different advice from the friend, the woman's friend, who came and said, "Let's go and get bottles," compared to the medical staff. But there were also different, um, le- different types of advice from medical professionals themselves. So on questions about when to supplement feeding and whether and when it was all right to give their babies cow's milk. Gloria described a dispute between doctors and midwives over breastfeeding. This also it's interesting, and it reflects the kind of power struggle between doctors and midwives. Um, when she was moved to Wallingford, the community hospital in Wallingford, to recuperate after giving birth at the Radcliffe Infirmary in Oxford in the 1960s, Matron comes in. Right, let's sort this baby out then. Well, you're having problems breastfeeding the baby. Yes, I am Matron. Right, that's it, she says. I'll dry your milk up. Don't worry about it, we'll get bottles. I'm not having my mothers upset by these doctors. And it's interesting that the midwives were kind of the heroic figures in Gloria's story. And she went on to describe her happiness at being allowed to bottle feed, saying it was wonderful. So breastfeeding was an emotive issue for the women reflecting back. To women who did breastfeed, it could be an incredibly satisfying experience. And it encouraged them to, fulfill, to feel they'd fulfilled the ideal of the natural mother. Cherry, for example, told me, I love that part of it, breastfeeding. I think it's a lovely close feeling. I don't think there's anything as nice as breastfeeding your baby and feeling that closeness. However, despite this enjoyment of breastfeeding that some of the women I interviewed reported, how they fed their babies was still an extremely sensitive subject for women. And recording problems surrounding feeding still caused them great distress. And I'm thinking in some instances this was 50, 60 years afterwards. It was still something that um, was, could be hard for them to talk about. For those interviewees who could not breastfeed... Um, found this very distressing, and were keen to defend their decision to bottle feed. And it's significant that they still felt they needed to defend the decision, perhaps um, because of the, the kind of continued stress on breastfeeding, felt even more under pressure to defend their decision. And they tended to explain it by saying they could not give their babies enough milk. So rather than even presenting it as a kind of choice that they wanted to bottle feed, they said, oh, well, I, you know, I tried, but I, but I couldn't. I couldn't feed. And it seems that many of the women seem to feel that breastfeeding was seen as the criterion of being a good mother. Good mothers breastfed. For example, Ivy, who had her children in 1947 and 1950, was encouraged to breastfeed, but found it difficult And she said that this was, um, she thought this was because she lacked maternal instincts to breastfeed. It was so bound up with the ideal of motherliness. Indeed, one of the interviewees' most frequent complaints was that they were told breastfeeding was natural and therefore would come easily to them, while in reality they found this often was not the case. For example, Hilda, who had her two children in 1967 and 1970, told me that breastfeeding made her feel like a cow. She complained that none of the medical staff warned her that it might be painful. I don't think they prepare (laughs) you for how it hurts. It does hurt. There's no two ways about it. And similarly, Dawn, who had her first child in 1979, felt that she didn't receive enough support from the staff in hospital and told me, it doesn't come naturally, does it? The fear of feeling a failure or being seen to have failed was constantly present in the women's accounts. Pippa had her first baby in 1983, and she recalled a number of people around to help with breastfeeding. Oops. <clears throat> in particular, she recalled that Chloe Fisher, this is a of Chloe Fisher here, um, who was a midwife in Oxford in the post-war period, um, but carried on, when she retired from, um, as a midwife, she carried on running a feeding clinic. Um, and <clears throat> Pippa told me that Chloe Fisher, the breastfeeding advisor, helped enormously. <coughs> Nonetheless, there was also ambivalence in her account. She worried about not having enough milk and gave up her vegetarianism because she felt she ought to eat meat. She explained. So I was eating liver and all these things. Sad, really, when you think about it. You know, there was so much pressure on me. (coughs) Jane had wanted to breastfeed and remembered that she received helpful advice. Nonetheless, she still recalled the worry she felt. When my daughter cried, I was convinced that it was because I wasn't feeding her properly. And Hilda's comments were perhaps particularly pertinent. After an abscess on her breast, she abandoned her attempts at breastfeeding. And she said, You felt an awful failure. These concerns also could translate into weaning. Georgie's daughter, her first child, was born in 1961. And she had struggled to breastfeed her daughter, and in the end, tried a combination of breast and bottle. However, Georgie said, didn't work very well, and it did set up in her feeding problems. Because once she went on to solids, she really, really ate, and I got very pleased about it. And so pleased, I probably would give her more than she needed, and she became fat. And she stayed fat until she was a teenager. She gradually put on weight, and weight, and weight, and weight, and she became a fat child. And I'm sure it was all my fault, But all my fault, because of this unusual regime that was set up when she was little. These feeding things do make a great deal of difference. Mothers could also worry when their children did not eat. Jean's two children were born in 1987 and 1990. She explained that she had healthy ideas and tried to feed her son rice with my milk and no sugar and all the rest of it which he wouldn't eat. She told me that, I remember ringing up my mother in floods of tears, and she came round with a Heinz baby food pot of chocolate. And of course he ate it, in about 30 seconds. So I think the lesson was learnt there. Those women who did not have mothers to turn to recalled that weaning a first baby was an especially stressful time. They did not know where to turn for advice. Daisy had two children in 1948 and 1950. She'd moved to Oxfordshire in the land army during the war, away from her family in Yorkshire. And her account of weaning her children touched on how she felt she missed out on a support network, but also the differences between uh, a first and subsequent baby. So she told me, well, the first one, I fed him by the book. Because, as I say, I was on my own, I hadn't a mother here, and I did everything by the book. And it said with eggs, don't give them the white, only the yolk, because it was bad for them. Well, I couldn't get him to eat eggs at all. It was so difficult. In the the end, I fed him on foods, you know, bought the baby foods. But the other one, he wanted what you were eating, as soon as he was old enough to take notice. I would have died giving the first one the food I gave the second one. He ate baked beans and everything. uh, In contrast, it's interesting that Maud, who'd been born and brought up in West Oxfordshire and had her large extended family all living nearby, spoke much more confidently about knowing what to do about feeding um, when she had her first child born in 1941. So when asked how she weaned her children, she said... Well, they we used to buy bone from the butcher, a veal bone, and put vegetables in it, and stew, and have some broth. That's what they started on. None of this now. I don't know what they have now. Everything out of pots, I think. When asked how she knew how to do this, she said her mother helped, before adding, It's common sense, isn't it, really? But there's not much left, I don't think. Common sense. <laughs> However, despite Maud's views that mothers today did not know how to feed their infants properly, feeding practices did seem to be passed down the generations. Siobhan had her two children in 1970 and 1971. Um, She said, you fed your children what you were eating, as long as it was suitable. Milled through this moolie. We didn't buy jars of baby food and just gave the children what we ate. And when she was talking about how she came to learn to do this, she said it was watching what her mother had done with her siblings. She came from a large family um, and had been involved in caring for her siblings when they were little. But it's interesting that she then went on to say, it's something that my own daughter-in-law does, because she likes to know what her children are being fed on. And I do think that she and I do things along quite similar lines, really. And she often says, her mum and myself think along similar lines. So we can see that um, knowing what to do has been passed down the generations as well. However, not all women had themselves experienced good, good feeding practices as infants. It was something that they couldn't pass down to their children. Jenny was born in 1943. Her mother had suffered from mental illness, and her father was away at the war. And Jenny said it was her older sister who brought her up. And she recalled a conversation that she'd had with this sister when her sister told her that um, her sister had been four at the time, and Jenny was a baby, and her sister had told her that she fed Jenny bread and jam because her mother was not feeding her. So this four-year-old sister had become the feeder. And her own childhood experiences surely made her more sensitive when it came to feeding her own children, who were born in 1966 and 1971. And as we'll see, this was expressed in her account of her youngest son's experiences at nursery. So, very briefly to finish off, I just wanted her to think a little bit about feeding practices in the nursery and how we can see um, this was an area where conflict could arise. So in the nursery day, then, as as is still the case now, meal or snack times were an important part of the daily routine. And when discussing working in or attending nurseries, both nursery workers and people who had attended nurseries as children, and indeed mothers who sent their children to nurseries, focused in their accounts on the issue of feeding or mealtimes. This is something I found very interesting. I kind of asked what was going on in the nursery. It's often structured around snack times, meal mealtimes. Um, you know, this, this is what was happening. Um, so it's interesting that kind of feeding um, has been remembered so importantly. So for um, recalling a private nursery she'd attended as a child in the late 1940s, Lynn told me, the day was not properly organised, really. Um, I mean, we did sums. We didn't have a playtime officially. This was curious. We never went outside. But we sat and had this little bottle of milk that everybody had for a while then. And then we sort of read. So it's interesting that in this kind of account of her day, the bottle of milk featured so prominently. And the stress... Placed on feeding within the nursery routine and the opportunities for conflict to occur between parents and staff meant that feeding difficulties in children could come to light when they attended nurseries. Some children could find themselves inhibited to eat in the strange environment of the nursery, irrespective of the types of foods that they were being given. So even if they were being given similar foods that they were at home at similar times, still being in that strange environment could be problematic. However, other children who were picky eaters or had poor appetites at home did not have such problems in the nursery, perhaps because they responded better to different foods or feeding times, or perhaps because the relationships with nursery staff were less emotionally charged than with their mothers. And mothers themselves offered both positive and negative interpretations of different feeding practices that their children received. And I think that this is in part also a reflection of how secure they felt in their own parenting. So Jenny, who I mentioned earlier, had a difficult childhood. And she also experienced significant hardships when raising her own children in the late 1960s and early 70s. A teacher, she was the family's sole breadwinner. Her husband had left the family when the children were very young. And as a teacher, she was entitled to a local authority day nursery place and her youngest son attended her day nursery from about 18 months old. She was not um, happy with the care that he received there. When, when she was talking about it, it was clear that it was still something that uh, both she and her son remembered. Um, it was a stressful time. Both remembered the nursery unhappily. It was an unhappy place for him to go to, and that reflected her views as well and this was criti- this kind of unhappiness um, with the nursery was crystallised in her criticisms of their feeding practices. So she said, Unfortunately, they fed him all day, and I could never give my own kind of food, which annoyed me immensely, because they'd give him tea at half past three, so I couldn't do an evening meal for the three of us. And he'd be put down to sleep in the afternoon, and then they all got up and had squashed banana and milk and goodness knows what, mushy, mushy tea about half three. In contrast, Carolyn, another mother I spoke to, thought that the best thing about the nursery that her children attended was that it encouraged good eating habits. Her three children had all attended a nursery school in the 1970s. Her two sons attended half days, but her daughter a full day. Now, Carolyn also had doubts about the nursery, she had doubts about the um, uh, educational qualities and the provision that are offered for play. But nonetheless, these doubts didn't, uh, were not about feeding, and she told me. The one, the one really wonderful thing that came out of it was my middle one, because she stayed for dinners, learned to eat all sorts of food. The other two are still incredibly fussy, and she'll eat anything. So, <clears throat> to just say very few words summing up, we can see that infant feeding was a central theme of women's accounts of motherhood in post-war Britain. And this came to light in a number of different areas what they were talking about, either in the decision to breast or bottle feed, the choice to follow a routine or demand-led feeding, the questions of when and how to wean their children, and the implications of handing over responsibility to feeding to other people. They were all highly emotive issues, and I think they were seen as being so important because successful feeding lay at the heart of what was um, a good mother. And these were ideas that were being told to women by wider society, that were coming from um, watching their own, in their own childhood, what a mother should be, what a mother should be doing, and also um, through their kind of own experiences of interacting with other mothers, but also medical professionals, reading the books and so on. When reflecting back upon the changes that they had witnessed from when they were babies to when they had their children and then watching their children raising their own families, they were left unsure what had really been the best approach see that change over time has been occurring. Um, but we're uncertain that everything can necessarily be progressive. There were um, things that were being better done now, but also things that have been done better in the past. Um, we can see in kind of the um, women saying about the, uh, there's no common sense has gone out the window these days, they're all feeding from bottles. But other women who um, have spoke more problematically about not sure that they've done the right thing, there's very sensitive issues. And I think that um, this kind of links into the wider worry and anxiety um, that women could feel about being mothers, um, the wider kind of um, culture of guilt that was placed on women um, at this time.